This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. Well, and we're celebrating a birthday, 90 years of Bloomberg Business Week, Carol. We are indeed. So we're going to take you through the decades, the history of the magazine, the topics that have been covered. uh, And what you'll find fascinating is some of our editors who have been there for a long time. We're also going to talk about Boeing halting production of its Grounded 737 MAX. We look into what really went wrong with a guy who has been following that company so closely, knows it inside and out for many years. Plus a fascinating feature story from Monty Real. He's our projects and investigations reporter. And man, he took us on a trip literally to Madagascar to figure out the wild economics of vanilla. Plain old vanilla. It's a great story, an adventure story that you probably wouldn't anticipate. But let's start with that big birthday. It's the 90th for Business Week. Doesn't look a day over 25. Economics editor Peter (laughs) Coy discusses the magazine's illustrious history. I was with the magazine for one third of its life, 30 years. It's impressive. I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. But I was not around in 1929. So the fascinating thing is the magazine was launched in September of 1929, which history buffs will recall was just seven weeks before the terrible stock market crash, which helped helped usher in the Great Depression. So not an auspicious time to be launching a magazine, um, but we survived those tough times and ended up thriving eventually huge success. And uh, at one point, the had more advertising pages than any magazine in the country um, and, and, and more uh, circulation than any business magazine in the world. And so what was the idea from the beginning? It was uh, McGraw-Hill was the publisher. And they bought a company called A.W. Shaw, which had a magazine called System, the magazine of business. And that was a monthly so uh, they spent about a year tinkering with it and relaunched it as a weekly, which was originally called The Business Week. And it was intended to be, in a way, very much like what we intend to do today, which is be uh, a quick read for people who care about business, whether you're a business person yourself or not, but you, you're interested. Uh, it was as opposed to some of the trade magazines, which were very niche, kind of vertical It was intended to be for everyone, covering all of business. That's what I always think is great about this magazine, because I feel like for most individuals, right, they have kind of a core thing that they're very interested in, but they're interested in the world at large. And as we have learned over the decades, increasingly, it's all interconnected. It is. And, you know, if you are uh, working for a tech company, You'll be interested in the tech coverage, but you might be most, almost more interested in the coverage of adjacent areas mm-hmm. because you're not following that on a day-to-day basis, and yet it will impinge on your life. Or politics, right? Sure. Like Think about how sure, the, exactly. the tech community is really embroiled in political scrutiny right now. So yeah. tell us your story. How did you get mm-hmm. to Business Week? Ah, I worked for Associated Press, and the guy from AP was uh, from Business Week who covered telecom was leaving, and he recommended me for the job, and I managed to get it. So my my first job was covering telecommunications. This was shortly after the breakup of the Bell system. That was still a big story at the time. And then I trans uh, over into technology, and then uh, there was an opening in covering economics. Mm. 
and with a really smart guy named Michael Mandel, uh, and he trained me up. And so I know not an not an economist, but I've kind of learned and enjoyed learning about economics over the years. And so, what was attractive to you at mm-hmm. at that first blush when you were coming from the AP? Was it sort of a it was a destination in in your mind, or what, what were I you mean, thinking? The the beauty is when you're at AP, you're on top of the news, but you're firing out stories all the time. When when you're at a magazine, you craft something. You have time to step back, make sure you get the headlines exactly the way you want it, phrase everything because you have a little bit of time. And we also have – obviously, we have shorter-term coverage too. We have a website with quick hits. But with, with a magazine story, a lot of eyes on it, um, a lot of attention to getting it you know, tuning it up, you can think of it that way for just the way you the way you want to deliver that message. I think what's also interesting, and you you really you guys go into it in terms of the early history in particular, about how this magazine, whether it was through some of the economists that were featured in the magazine or some yeah. of the stories, could really kind of put pressure on the government in terms of policy. It yeah. really became kind of a must read. I think you're I think you're referring to our early coverage of what do you call today call Keynesian economics. John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, was not well known in the United States. Business Week was the first uh, and most important publication that sort of championed some of his ideas. Remember, um, when the, the Depression hit, people had no idea what to do about it. Economy took an extremely steep mm-hmm. dive. There were a lot of people who were saying, okay, let's, let's get rid of the, the rot, you know, uh, if we can just liquidate all these people who took on foolish loans, you know, that'll clean the system. And, and what Keynes said and Business Week said is that, no, that's the wrong solution. Th- that'll just spiral downward and downward and downward. The government needs to come in and support the economy with things like tax cuts and spending mm-hmm. until it can get back on its feet. You don't put a, somebody who's just been in a car accident – you know, um, through uh, vigorous physical exercise. Right. You've got to help them recover, give them IV fluids and so on. And that's sort of, that was the message. That's Peter Coy, and he's been with Business Week for about 30 years. And so fun to talk with him about the history of the magazine, some of the stories he's covered, and what's really changed in the world of business. Well, and we're reminded how prolific he is, oh but God. also how much the magazine, from an economics perspective, just anticipated so much and really influenced the conversation. This is what Business Week does so well, Jason. Take something that many of us probably take for granted, and uh, I'm talking about vanilla. Yeah, I certainly (laughs) take it for granted. It's sitting there in the spice cabinet, although we have noticed over the last couple years, I think anybody who's paying attention, the price has spiked uh, at times in a really meaningful way. Well, there's a story behind that. Monty Real, he has some of the most interesting assignments, goes to some of the most interesting places, and this story took him to Madagascar. Luckily for us, he's back home in Chicago. That's where he joins us. So, Monty, take us to Madagascar and to this market. Yeah, so this is a regional market. This is the place where vanilla actually enters the international marketplace. And it's really remote. It's really kind of hard to get to. It's basically a hut, a wooden hut in a really small village in northeastern Madagascar, which is the vanilla growing region. And just to give you an idea of how 
tough it is to get there. So you fly to Madagascar's capital, you take a small plane to a small airport in the northeast, then you have to drive over really, really bad roads um, to try to get to this particular market area. And for example, when we did that, our driver couldn't go any further because the road we were on was actually swallowed by a river. <laughs> so we had to wade across the river. Luckily, it wasn't very deep. And then walk for a couple hours beyond that to finally reach this little hut, really, in a, in a village where dozens of farmers would bring their annual harvest of vanilla, and that's where it would be bartered by, over by international flavor companies and exporters and then go out into the wider world. i got to say, there's a great line in your story how you talk about where you went as this great observation lab that, I want to take your words, exposes both the genius and the insanity of globalized commerce. I mean, that's exactly what you saw at work. Yes. Um, it's almost hard to imagine some of the things that happen in the vanilla trade in terms of, for example, just how the crop is paid for. It's all cash. It's a cash economy. So the buyers who go to these markets have to get cash, you know, along the same route that we took to get there. And the biggest denomination bill in Madagascar is worth about $5. (laughs) And these buyers are buying tons of vanilla beans. And these vanilla beans can, when they're cured, can cost as much as $600 per kilo. So they need lots of cash. So there's actually, they bring bales and bales of cash to these markets on the back of motorcycles uh, and and just being carried. And that's just one example of kind of the, the strange market that vanilla is because of its isolation there in Madagascar um, and also because of the the price swings. And so, Monty, I have to say, reading this story, and Carol and I have talked a lot about it this week, just between the two of us Mm -hmm. at our desk, this notion of how is this market so limited to this one really obscure place? Because this is not one of these things that candidly you read about in the back of pursuits where, you know, only people who are billionaires can get this. I mean, this is something we both have in our homes. How has it been so limited to this one geography? Well, it comes from an orchid. Vanilla grows from the flower of an orchid, um, and it's actually native to Mexico. But uh, many years ago, it was basically transferred to Africa, and it was found that it grew very well in Madagascar. Um, And just, um, you know, vanilla is not one of those products that can be grown like soybeans or something like that, an easily managed commodity. It really is a stubborn crop as people grow it describe it. Um, It likes to grow among other plants, um, and it's incredibly labor-intensive. So every step of the growing and cultivation process is done by hand. Even the pollination of the flowers to get the beans to grow is done by hand. So um, it basically it comes down to one of the main reasons why Madagascar dominates the trade so much is labor costs. Mm. Um, the minimum wage in Madagascar for agricultural workers is about 18 cents an hour. Mm. So, you know, in talking with people who work for vanilla companies, they talk about trying to grow um, start plantations in other tropical areas like um, places like uh, Indonesia, there are countries in Africa that have started to develop a vanilla industry. But they say that, you know, that works well when vanilla prices are at highs. But whenever the prices tank, the it becomes financially 
unstable to to invest in those kind of operations. So, Monty, why do the prices swing so much? Is it just a case? I mean, I would think demand was fairly consistent, but I'm just curious, why do we see those kind of wild price swings? There are a few reasons, and one of the main reasons is because Madagascar dominates the trade so much. Um, the infrastructure in Madagascar is really undeveloped, and it's also an island there in the Indian Ocean that's that's vulnerable to storms. So, mm. for example, a few years ago, there was a big cyclone that basically leveled the vanilla fields in the northeast. And vanilla is a crop that it takes three years from the time it's planted for the beans to uh, for the plant to be mature enough to produce beans. So if you have a concentrated area and something happens to that area, it really can set um, the production uh, and supply back. And that's what happened a few years ago. And ever since that cyclone that came through in the early 2000s, the market has been really volatile. It's been, you know, spiking up to $600 or so at a high per kilo. And then it can go down to as low as 20 or 30. So it's just an enormous range. And so when you take a step back and, and think about this story, and I highly recommend anybody mm-hmm. read this, like, you know, sit down, you know, take some time over the holiday and read it because you'll learn something about economics and politics yeah. and trade and all of that. But what do you take away as you sort of come back to the United States about either the state of global trade, the state of demand, uh, economics? What is it? I think this is actually a really good kind of window to look at how global trade works. And the surprising thing for me, I think, was just how how wild some of that is at the most elemental level. So that's Monty Real. We love catching up with him. He does some wonderful deep dive stories. He's our projects and investigations reporter. So he literally took a trip to Madagascar and just wanted to find out vanilla. We take it for granted, Jason, right? It's in all of our pantries. We use it for baking and for cooking. But what's interesting is what it takes to get those vanilla beans basically to all of us. Yeah, who would have thought that a story involving vanilla would involve wading through a river, sort of chalkboarding and negotiating and bartering. It's a really cool story. Loved it. The repo market, well, it makes some people's eyes glaze over. It makes others turn away from you at a cocktail party. It's a market that always, always needs to be explained, Jason. Which is why we have Joe Weisenthal. He joins <laughs> so us true. just about every day on our daily radio show. Keeps us, keeps us honest about the markets. All right, Joe. You're here with us in New York City. Keep us honest on the repo market. Why do we care about this again? The repo market is essentially how various entities, whether it's a bank, whether it's a fund, hedge fund, money market fund, how they finance themselves on an overnight basis. Because nobody wants to just hold cash because cash you know, doesn't really earn anything. And so people always want to be maximizing their profits. So what they do when they need liquidity is they borrow it overnight and they might pledge some collateral like treasury bonds or mortgage bonds or something like that to make the cash bills that they need to pay um, so that they can make the bills right. they need to pay. Right. It feels like one of those things that no one really cares about until right. it stops working, which is essentially what happened in September. Right, exactly right. So in September, we saw the rates on overnight repo borrowing absolutely soar. And it's important to recognize that prior to that, for most of the time, it moves roughly in line with where the Fed sets the rate. And in, it's one way, the one mechanism via which the Fed sort of sets short-term interest rates and you expect the repo market to behave. The issue is that 
the um the cash that banks have is really reserves held at the Fed, and the Fed, as part of its quantitative uh, tightening, trying to quote normalize its operations post crisis, has been reducing the available supply of cash at the Fed. At the same time, you have regulators telling banks you have to hold a certain amount of cash as part of post crisis regulations to ensure that you have adequate liquidity. So what we saw in September was this confluence of multiple things. There's the Fed tightening, reducing the amount of reserves available. Right. There's the regulatory restraint saying, no, you have to hold these reserves even though the Fed is eliminating their existence. And then you had this timing issue where due to tax payments and treasury auctions and things like that, suddenly that created a lot of demand. To, it was uh, the end of a quarter, out right? Of the system. That's exactly right. So this end of quarter payments, things like that. There's another issue, which is that at quarter end and year end is when regulators come and they take a look. And the analogy that I like to use is you might have a really messy bedroom, but if you know like five minutes before your mom or dad gets home, then suddenly you clean up. So occasionally throughout the year, the regulators come like, peeking in and they want to see, well, how liquid is your balance sheet? What kind of assets do you hold? So everybody scrambles to hold the highest quality, most liquid assets right at the same time. The problem is if there's a finite amount of them, then you really have to pay up to get them. So should we expect another squeeze come the end of December? Here we're wrapping up not only a quarter, but a year. This is a really... uh, a really big question. And so the the man that everybody listens to on Repo is this strategist at Credit Suisse, Zoltan Posar. Whenever he puts out a note, everybody wants to get it. They're like, what did Zoltan say? So he is concerned about this, that there's going to be this major liquidity squeeze as various entities demand this liquidity ahead of the regulators checking in at the end of the year. The flip side is that the Fed seems to be way more cognizant of the risks this time around. They've certainly stopped shrinking the supply of uh, reserve balances, so that eases some of the strain. They've also engaged in some of these operations where people can borrow, essentially, uh, liquidity at the Fed. So it's kind of unclear right now, but perhaps what we saw in September and Zoltan's uh, warning themselves may have been what uh, kicked regulators and the Fed into gear to present a blow, but we don't know for sure. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, the number of questions and the amount of time that Jay Powell had to spend during his last press conference, essentially Mm -hmm. reassuring answering questions from reporters about this. It felt like he did a good job, but it was one of those moments where you thought, man, he really is talking about this a lot. It's extremely complicated stuff, and a lot of people in the market still don't get it. Actually, uh, Tracy Alloway, one of the authors of the Business Week piece about Posar, and I, we had interviewed him for a podcast. And the most important thing he said to me, the takeaway is, Reserve balances at the Fed, he called them tokens. And so you can, and what I love about that analogy is you could imagine going to an arcade and everybody has enough money to play the games. Mm -hmm. So no one is actually broke, but if the token machine isn't working or if maybe some people pocketed tokens that took them home, you people can't play the game. The game is finance. Everyone might have money. Everyone might have solid balance sheets. And you could still have a crisis if the tokens are missing. And that's Joe Weisenthal. We love catching up with him on our daily show. He's always got a little bit of a quirky perspective. <laughs> but I have to say, he set the table beautifully for this. I feel like now every conversation I go into about the repo market – 
an arcade is going to pop into my mind. He really did explain it well. And it's an important story. It really kind of confused the markets, confused investors, but it's been a hot topic when it comes to the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell specifically, and one that's going to carry us into 2020. So definitely check that out. So no doubt about it, Jason, Me Too has impacted the financial community, Wall Street, and yet many might argue that its day of reckoning has yet to come. Well, and that's what's so interesting about these remarks is that it points out the fact that, yes, there's been a reckoning ish so far. Uh, And it really, when you look at it versus entertainment, especially, Mm -hmm. it has not really resonated or reverberated, I should say, the way that some expected. Max Abelson, he and Katja Porchikansky have the remarks in this week's magazine. Congrats on this. It's very thought provoking. Max joins us here in New York City. So what'd you set out to do here? Well, first of all, I was working with Katja Porzaganski, and it's basically a fluke that I'm here instead of her because it, it really should be her. She's really thoughtful about this stuff. But, you know, sometimes in the newsroom, we sit and look at each other and we're like, you know, where is Me Too in the financial services industry? I mean, we know from years of chronicling the hedge funds and banks and private equity and asset management that Wall Street, you know, just like lots of other industries, including journalism, has profound imbalances and women quietly say that they are harassed and discriminated against and assaulted and uh, that they they fear retribution. But we haven't seen that broad moment of change. And what this piece is about is the sort of the system, this like machine of silence that we've discovered piece by piece that that explains why. All right. Well, because I do think after Me Too in the entertainment world, I think we all thought, okay, Wall Street's next. And it didn't quite happen. I have a word for you. Arbitration. Arbitration, I'm embarrassed to say, is one of those things that, I mean, if we, we've known each other for years, if, if you brought that word up to me two and a half years ago, I'm pretty sure I would more or less draw a blank. Right. In fact, I was on the phone with a Wall Street veteran who said to me, if you really want to understand why we're not seeing Me Too on Wall Street, and this was you know, more than a year ago, she was like, you have to look at the invisibility cloak. And I was like, invisibility cloak? She was like, the system of arbitration. That's the system that's parallel to the courts, and it's behind closed doors. It's a, basically a private justice system mm-hmm. that used to be relatively obscure sort of for you know, fights within an industry. And Wall Street itself really helped it expand so that it now covers essentially two out of three workers at big U.S. companies. And Wall Street, unlike other industries, runs its own arbitration hearings. And it's – Wall Street is – Definitely a master of arbitration, and it really helps explain a lot. I love this sentence in the story, but the finance industry's mastery of this system, meaning forced arbitration, has prevented the revolution of the past two years from touching it, meaning the Me Too revolution. Yes, and look, I mean, if a Wall Street executive were here with us, um, I talk to them about this all the time. They Men would say, and women? Well, the senior executives are all men, but the human resources executives are some, sometimes women. And I've dealt with Wall Street lawyers who are women for sure. And so has Katya and so has Gavin Lynch who is, uh, and Sabrina Wolmer, who both contributed reporting to this piece. They say, look, arbitration, they'll say, is quicker. It's cheaper. It's quieter. Um, but it's just as fair. That's, that's what they'll say. That's their defense of arbitration. You know, women will say it stops us from banding together right. and from learning about each other and from sort of instituting major change. It's the kind of class action lawsuits that we've written about in the past few years. Right. You can't have those with arbitration. Well, and let's talk about both systemic and cultural aspects as well, because you dig into this too in this piece of you know, the cultures of a lot of these firms – are set up in a way, both structurally and just ethos-wise, 
that it doesn't feel like a safe place to bring these sorts of complaints, even the advocates, the would-be advocates within the firms, HR, for instance, aren't really on the side of the employees. They're sort of on the side of kind of keeping things quiet and keeping it all under wraps. Our story focused um, on three sort of crystallizing moments. One was Cantor Fitzgerald, which has to do with arbitration. Another was Ken Fisher, who of course had those famous comments now at a conference in California. Mm-hmm. And the third was Lloyds of London. I mentioned Gavin Finch, who just did really important, amazing, amazing yeah. work out of London. I mean, like jealousy inducing, you know? <laughs> but what is really upsetting about it, and Katya and I talked about this with uh, Becca, Rebecca Greenfield, our, our editor, you know, what's upsetting about the Lloyd story and a couple others like it is not just that it paints a picture of guys behaving like extremely badly. What's profoundly upsetting about the Lloyd story and another one uh, at a firm called M&G, also in London, that, mm-hmm. and also written by Gavin, is that it gives you a sense that these women went to HR and, and talked about for being assaulted, for example, or being accosted, and that HR was basically like, it'll be bad for your career if you say anything. Yeah. You know, don't mm-hmm. smile around him. I think that was a literal response from human resources at a big institution that Gavin Finch found. Don't smile around him. But Maybe what- dress differently. You know, like change your behavior in right. order to avoid these situations in the future. Right. Well, and what's interesting, too, is I love how you guys kind of break down what's different maybe about the financial industry also is that predominantly it's been built by men. Still, the senior positions are men. And there's a lot of money at stake here as well. There sure is. And that money equals power. There sure is. Uh, Gene Christensen, who's a lawyer and employee side lawyer uh, at Wigdor, said, said that in almost as well as you just did. Well, I kind of was taking her you words. Cri- you cribbed from Gene. <laughs> Fair enough. Credit where it's due. But um, listen, you know, to speak honestly with you about sort of the experience of being a Wall Street reporter and trying to cover this stuff like vividly but also fairly. Right. You know – what this story is about is is basically this machine, this system that Katya and I and Sabrina and Gavin and others in the newsroom sort of found ourselves up against. But you know, one thing that's nice about working with our editor, Rebecca, is that she deals with um, the gender uh, pay gap and with discrimination across capitalism. Right. And I think that there's a reasonable point to be made that we don't get into the story necessarily that maybe – this isn't a Wall Street problem. You know, maybe it's a capitalism problem or a power problem or a gender problem. But what about the rest of corporate America? Like for comparison, I mean, you guys have done incredible reporting over the past couple of years, really, when it comes to this issue. But I do wonder, like I was thinking about when I read it, I'm like, okay, here's Wall Street. But what about the rest of corporate America? Has it come along? It's fair to say that, you know, I think just about sitting at a, a Bloomberg and reading the news that comes down the wire, you know, McDonald's CEO leaves. Right. You know, that you, you do see changes that don't... Don't necessarily hit Wall Street, but maybe what we've seen over the past year, in, in addition to learning about the, this system of silence, is maybe we're seeing cracks. You know, learning about Ken Fisher, mm-hmm. who by all accounts would say stuff like this for years. These sort of sexual references, getting into girls' pants. He tweeted about slavery. People would basically shrug this off. Yeah. Sabrina told us, or you know, like laugh uncomfortably, but like that's it. This year, something changed. I think about reading uh, stories by Annie Massa mm-hmm. about BlackRock, yeah. right. literally the biggest asset manager in the world, right. where apparently Larry Fink sat down his biggest deputies and were like, was like, guys, like, you got to watch your behavior. Two of the people in that top group are now out because I think of breaking rules around company relationships. Right. Maybe, maybe right. that means we're starting to see changes, but maybe not. But the arbitration it, system still exists. The arbitration system still exists, and it's a good question because big tech companies, several big tech companies, have moved away 
from having women who are claiming harassment go to arbitration. They're letting them out of arbitration agreements. Wall Street is different. Right. Wall Street likes this system and mm-hmm. it helped pioneer it. And Wall Street so far is not moving away from it. You close the piece, I think, with a really important point and a name that looked like it might trigger a whole series of revelations and didn't, and that's Jeffrey Epstein. What do we know and what might we have known had he not died in jail? It just felt like so much was going to come out. There were those moments this summer where it was like, what huge names are will, will fall now because you know Epstein was close with billionaires and with hedge fund managers and with chief executives instead though he passed away and it feels like maybe that will be um when I, when I think about whether or not we're going to see change, that feels somehow like a sign that the status quo kind of somehow, maybe it's arbitration, maybe it's a culture of fear, maybe it's money, maybe it's human resources, somehow the status quo wins out and maybe it it will keep doing that or maybe we're beginning to see change. Yeah. And it, it wins out at least for now. But when you look back at Harvey Weinstein and you think about the times that when you read uh, the books now that have been written about that case and the reporting that went into it so many times, they almost were there, almost were there. And then they were. And you wonder if that moment is coming for Wall Street. That's right. Well, shout out not only to the journalists who covered Harvey Weinstein uh, and to the reporters in this newsroom, but also reporters at, at places that are in Bloomberg. And especially shout out to Katya Porzgansi, my co-writer, who couldn't join us today. All right. Great story. Mm. Thought-provoking. Uh, a really interesting way to head into 2020. There'll be Big more questions on about this. Wall Street. No a lot more to come, it. for sure. Okay. Max Abelson. Really appreciate it. Thanks. 90 years of Business Week, the magazine, so many changes over the years, including tweaks to the name. Someone with deep, deep, deep ties to Business Week is none other than Jim Ellis. All the way back to 1980, he has seen some things. He's here with us <laughs> in New York City. Talk about Business Week when you joined in 1980. What was it like? Oh, it was a, a, a different magazine. Obviously, we were a different place, different owner, but there were a lot of things that were surprisingly the same. It has always been a big thought that we do more than simply report the news. What we want to do is add insight and, um, you know, add analysis so that the reader can, you know, not just sort of have a chronicle of what happened this week, but also why it's important, why it matters, and what might become of it in the future. And that's the value add that I think has sort of gone all the way through all 90 years. What's really fun is that there are three people. The, the, the section that covers 90 years of Business Week kicks off identifying three people who span the entire lifetime, the 90 years of Business Week. You are one of them. Not that you go back 90 years. <laughs> but what's fascinating is this whole idea of, you know, editors and, and individuals passing down kind of the history of the well, magazine. Uh, that's one of the nice things about uh, our magazine is that, you know, there is a lot of continuity. I mean, I work with people who I have literally known for 30 years. Right. And, um, but one of the nice things about that is that we've seen a lot of things happen in business. And there's a lot of context that, you know, we already know. We're not inventing, you know, sort of we're not rushing around. Oh, my God. I was there at the opening of Disney World. I'm sort of embarrassed to say I covered that. And, um, you know, I, but I covered the tobacco business in the past. I've been the editorial page editor. I've done a lot of things here. And so a lot of us can easily shift between stories. And we all hopefully can add a lot when we work with younger reporters as well, right. because we've seen a lot of these stories before. The surprising thing about business is that as much as it changes, a lot of the themes, you know, that we 
thought of when I was young in this business, you know, sort of changing technology, changing roles of, you know, who the consumer is, changing roles of women in business, all of those that were, you know, issues 30, 40 years ago are issues today. Mm-hmm. Well, and Jim, one of the roles I believe you played, and keep me honest here, is you were the chief of correspondence. And so you were dealing with all the outlying bureaus, which for so long, and obviously now in a different context at Bloomberg, that really feeds the magazine in a lot of ways. and gives it a feel, I should say, that is far beyond just a bunch of people in New York putting together a magazine. Tell us about that. That's one of the strengths that we've always had, is being able to have a bureau system or a system of reporters around the world who are, you know, sort of close to their companies, but also picking up information that it's often difficult to get if you're seven time zones away. But, um, you know, having people in Asia back before, uh, you know, before the China handover of Hong Kong, before China was completely open, allowed us to be early on stories like that and to understand a lot of why things either happen very fast or they don't happen nearly as fast as a lot of people in New York seem to think. Right. We've been we've benefited from, you know, A, having those bureaus back in the day, but we're especially benefiting from that now because Bloomberg has a huge editorial staff that we're able to draw on, you know, for stories, for reporting, for insight, for, you know, it, it, this is a wonderful place to work simply because you've got, you know, over 2,000 journalists and analysts who can sort of, you know, throw into a story. If I've got a question or a problem about something I can call somebody tomorrow in you know, Accra. I can call somebody mm-hmm. tomorrow in, you know, sort of Singapore, and we can talk it through. Yeah, you really get a feeling of what's going on on the ground, yeah. and it's so important in terms of reporting. Tell us a little bit about a little bit more about you know bringing women into the magazine uh, and the consumer too, like how it's kind of evolved. Well, it the changed years. because originally Business Week was heavily um, sort of based on economic coverage. I mean, and you can understand managed by why. men, written by men, yeah, and, and you written can about understand men. That you know, <laughs> it started the year of the Great Depression started, yeah. and so therefore a lot of the early years. There was a huge emphasis on the economy, which was you know, had completely fallen apart, and you know there were the debates about whether Keynesianism and you know, and we were a big player in that. But as the economy strengthened, all of a sudden, you know, the magazine gets an opportunity to shift along with you know society in looking at other things. First was the notion that you know the consumer was changing. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, we had people who said, "Oh." One size doesn't fit all. It's not Henry Ford again saying, you know, you can have the Model T in any color as long as it's black. Right. right. You know, all of a sudden, market segmentation became this big deal. And also new businesses were popping up because technology was suddenly inventing new industries, new things that were more consumer focused. And what happened is that, you know, we had to figure out ways to cover that. But also management had to figure out ways to manage that. Mm. So the idea of a professional manager came up because before, you know, you saw sort of were in a business, you stayed in it your entire life. But then in the 50s and 60s, especially the notion that there could be these MBAs, these these professional managers who could learn how to run a business and not have spent 30 years in mm-hmm. it. We were early on that. We were back in the 1950s. Um, in the early 50s, we wrote about um, you know this notion of can a manager be actually trained? And it was pegged to um, uh, Alfred P. Sloan, who was the CEO of General Motors and famous management guru, right. and, um, who, who decided to give $5 million to MIT to open up a business school. And people were like, what in the world a is this? A school for business? A school what? for that. A general manager can be taught. And we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, 
what are the positives, what are the negatives, and, and sort of we were early on that, and it, it it served us well. And obviously, in the by the time we got around to the 1980s, we were doing business school rankings, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and the MBA was considered to be wow. But at the time we started covering this, the whole idea of formal management education was was considered to be this sort of fringe thought. That's Jim Ellis, our business editor. He has been at the magazine for 40 years, and what's really fascinating, we highlight that through three individuals, they basically their tenure at the magazine covers the span of uh, the magazine in its entirety. Jim is one of them. He is, and his perspective, having overseen the correspondence for the magazine, now looking after the business section, he knows these stories from a lot of different perspectives. Tech bubble, housing bubble, a bubble in assets. We've seen a few bubbles, Jason, in our investment lifetime. The question is, and I love this in the remarks this week, have they become a necessary evil in order for developed nations to grow? Well, it's a big question, Mm -hmm. and he's always asking big questions, Peter Coy is, in the magazine. And bubbles are fascinating in part because it's such a loaded word at this point. I mean, I did an interview recently with an asset manager, and somebody pulled me aside beforehand and said, be really careful if you're going to ask him about a bubble because it just sets off a whole series of rhetorical and and intellectual thoughts in many people's minds. But you take on the bubbles here. Well, what you, when you look back what's happened over the past 30 or so years in business, we had the uh, great economy of the 1990s, uh, the dot-com boom, and uh, massive investment in telecommunications and so on. And then it turned out to be probably overinvestment as was revealed with a big bust that happened right around the year 2000. Shortly after that, the economy started to recover again, and this time it was housing, uh, probably overinvestment in housing. And that was fueled by the subprime bubble, the, the bad mortgages, stupid and fraudulent mortgages. And so two, two times in a row, and here we are again, the economy is recovering from the the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We've had a very long uh, run of growth. But what? Maybe we're heading into another bubble, as evidenced by the lowest interest rates in the history of the world. You know, we're in in negative territory Mm -hmm. in Europe and Japan. As far as I can tell, somebody can try to disprove me, this has never happened before. And so what happens when rates go so low? Investors are desperate for yield, so they look for it wherever they can get it, which means they take on more risk. And that's sort of the definition of a bubble. When you, when you ignore risks and you, you just make a bet that this asset price is going to go up and up and up. Well, as you remind us that investors get you know, kind of stressed out when prices are down in terms of assets. Yeah. And yet that's the point when there's usually opportunity, opportunity versus precisely. when you've got valuations at right. higher levels. I mean, Right now, it's uh, holiday season, you know. Here he goes. Uh, no, I'm not going to sing, but, but there's this uh, attitude like, hey, th- times are really good. Yeah. Stock market is hitting new highs. Just There's a lot of jubilation in the air. Well, that's when you should be worrying because that's when, you know, bad loans get made in good times. And the American economist, Hyman Minsky, said stability breeds instability. This is exactly when we overreach. Well, and one thing I love in your story is you talk about here we are, ironically, low inflation environment, and yet you are seeing riots around the world, Mm -hmm. especially in developing areas, about the high cost of living, actually, even in our own country where there are cities and so on and so forth. It doesn't quite make sense, does it? 
Right. Um, a great example actually is Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Everybody focuses on how the uh, students are protesting against the, the mainland China, and that's certainly part of it. But it's also just there. People are fed up with the most expensive housing costs in the world. Well, what is that? That's a bubble. That's yeah. a real residential real estate bubble in Hong Kong. And yet, here we are in this bull market that shows no signs of slowing down. Right. And there is a case to be made, and we've talked about it on this program before, yeah. that maybe this has been managed the right way all along, despite all of those headwinds and warning signs that are right. out there. How do you square that, and especially the jubilation and the enthusiasm yeah. that you referenced that the consumer still has? So I'm trying to steer this article away from exactly deciding whether how or how much we're overvalued or undervalued today, getting back to the bigger concepts of whether – economy, the U.S. economy almost depends on bubbles right. for growth. And, you know, bubbles are not entirely bad because right. sometimes that exuberance can lead people to invest in things that need to be invested in. So we can go back to the canals and railroads in the 19th century, radio in the 20th century, fiber optics in, in the 90s, uh, or even today, some of the, dot, uh, some of the um, social media platforms and so on have taken in a lot of money and uh, good things end up happening for consumers, although sometimes the investors lose out. Right. Uh, but the bad side of a, a bubble is the, the wasted resources. And uh, go back to all these phantom um, zombie housing developments that were built and then um, never occupied. Um, well, and it, we should point out, and maybe this is obvious, that bus tend to hurt people, like in the sense of you or, think about, point. Yeah. you know, the recession that yeah. came right after the dot-com bust. You think about the Great Recession. You know, people lost their jobs. People lost their homes. When it right. busts, it can right. it can hurt. The, the unemployment rate is extremely low right now. But um, if we hit a uh, bust, then it would shoot up. And, of course, the last hired first fired. And the people who chose to invest, like I feel so sorry for those people who bought houses in 2006, 2007 with bad loans and then were wiped out very quickly. But go back to the question I posed, and it was really your question, your story about have bubbles become a necessary evil in order for wealthy nations to grow? I mean, is it? Is it? I'm curious from the folks that you talked to. There's a guy who appears on Bloomberg television once in a while, super smart David Levy. Yeah. He's from the Jerome Levy Forecasting Mm -hmm. Center. And he's an inheritor of a tradition, uh, going back to people like Hyman Minsky I mentioned earlier, who would argue that uh, he has a paper out called Bubble or Nothing, where he kind of posits the idea that, well, maybe that's true, what what Carol said, that maybe um, it's almost as though we're geared to it because balance sheets have gotten so big, so top-heavy, um, people owe so much money mm-hmm. that the only way you can relieve some of that debt burden is by cutting the interest rate. So whenever there's a financial crisis, the interest rate comes down. And we see the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, so on, doing that, pushing rates down and down and down. Each uh, f- cycle we go through, they get lower. Well, guess what? They pretty much hit bottom. You cannot go much lower than somewhat below zero. The U.S. is above that floor, but Europe and Japan are pretty much at the floor. Right. And, and the so US, what happens next, right? Right. right. And the U.S. is flirting with yeah. negative rates, and certainly the president has advocated to some extent for that. He has. Uh, once, you've, once you've exhausted that uh, weapon against recessions, 
then you've got a big problem on your hands. That's economics editor Peter Coy. And I love this story because we've seen so many different bubbles in our lifetime, whether it's the tech bubble, whether it's the property bubble. And I love that Peter asked the question, and I think many are asking the question, do we need bubbles in order to bring about growth, especially in a developed economy? Maybe bubbles are kind of good for you. Who knew? Climate change, we know, Jason, impacts businesses, impacts industries, homes, how people live. But this story in the economics section notes this week that it may have helped fuel the popular uprising that has seen millions marching on the streets of Chile. This is a fascinating and disturbing story. Mm -hmm. It takes us, as you say, to Chile. Christina Lindblad, our economics editor, fearlessly is here talking about this story. There's a lot to kind of be disturbed by here. I have to say, and the connections that you draw are pretty stark. Yeah, I mean, I think that most of the coverage of these protests has focused on dissatisfaction over, you know, the economic model and how it relates to, you know, meager pensions and and people feel like, you know, the education system is, you know, is is producing inequality. The usual suspects, Yeah, exactly. But but we looked at the backdrop of this, which is a 10-year mega drought. We now tack mega in front of these events. And that's been affecting central Chile, which is where most of the population is. Uh, the north is already very arid. And and so we looked at these water fights, have been pl- I mean, literally, that have been playing out and how these protests kind of, you can't say they literally jumped from rural areas to the city, but there's definitely been this echoes of like unequal access to water equals unequal access to education, unequal access to opportunity, you know? Well, tell us about the impact that it's had on on the lifestyle. I think about farmers in Chile and so much more. How has it played out? So, I mean, we talked to to you know people who've lost more than half of their livestock, mm-hmm. you know, in the last couple of years. And and there's also an area in particular in this valley where avocado farming has um, you know spread, of course, uh, to feed this global <laughs> demand for avocados. In particular, right. a lot of exports to the UK out of that valley. And in that instance, it's it's because basically the, the avocado farmers are being accused of exploiting their water rights that they acquired years ago and also tapping rivers illegally. And so all the small farmers in the area um, are, you know, have, have the rainfall has been lacking, so they don't have anything to water. So the, the avocado farmers are fine. Yeah. But the- I mean, if you look at the photos, it is stark. I mean, you'll see these hills that are all brown and on these avocado farms. Avocado is a really water intensive crop. Yeah. Right. should not really be grown in some of these places. So, yeah, that's one of those things. And and one of the issues that this brings to mind, I think, is income inequality, obviously, but also this notion of political and economic choices that favor business over consumers or people Mm -hmm. to, to get down to it and sort of businesses even over what I think most would argue is a basic human right. Right. Well, that's right. And I think people were initially surprised about the, the sort of the violence of, of these demonstrations in Chile of all places because it has so often been cited as a model for the rest of Latin America in terms of how it enshrined uh, this neo, neoliberal model, you know, in its constitution. And that constitution dates from the time of the, the dictatorship. And so does a water... This is Pinochet. This yeah, is back to Pinochet, right? right? Mm-hmm. So And so does a water law that basically gives people water rights in perpetuity. So companies, you know, have them forever. They can trade them. You know, 
there was once upon a time the thought was like free markets will help people, you know, uh, be careful in the management and use of a finite resource. But that really has not been the case as we've seen it in some places. Mining and, and sort of and, and kind of export oriented agriculture have really kind of priority have prior the government has prioritized those kinds of uses for water and so you know we have now communities in chile that depend on water getting trucked in i mean when they open the faucet nothing comes out yeah it's, it's amazing it's amazing <gasps> and setting. and i do wonder you know what is the political backdrop here because a lot of this unrest as you said at the beginning of the conversation has been tied to the political system is there any sense that that may change soon what what's the latest there well i mean it's the outcome it may be quite radical in that um, legislators have sat and agreed on two possible means of rewriting the Constitution. So now this consensus in the country is a fair large consensus that the Constitution needs to be rewritten because it enshrines this model that is no longer like, you know, that is that is caused distortion. Yeah, it's essentially not valid right, for the country. Right. So we may see as part of that, I mean, they haven't started talking about how water is going to play into that because that's a separate law, but we, we could see changes in that as well. It's a complete rethinking, basically, of sort of like, what do you want to be as a country? Well, and I think, yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. I feel like Chile, perhaps the extreme case in terms of climate change, right, and the drought and the impact it's had on the people there. But Chile's not the only place, right, where we're seeing climate change, a warming climate, lead to political strife and social unrest. We've seen it around the world. Right. In Syria, it played a role in the civil war because there was like um, crop loss and then that pushed up the price of bread Mm -hmm. and there were protests, you know, that sort of morphed. Again, it's like sometimes it's like something lights a match and then all these other demands get, you know, kind of folded in, you know. But I think I think it's, you know, if you think of it as water, you know, it's be like an alienable right, right? Yeah. Well, so it like it 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 exercises people that they don't have access. Christina Lindwad, thank you. Thank you. In 2019, we talked a lot about SoftBank, the Vision Fund, and the Japanese billionaire behind it all, Masayoshi-san. Now, the Vision Fund's mega investments in some of the world's best-known and sometimes most controversial startups have captured the attention of everyone. This story in the magazine this week really peels back the layers of the fund. Sarah McBride joins us from San Francisco to tell us more about this cover story. So, Sarah, I do feel like 2019, we did talk a lot about uh, the Vision Fund and its investments. What did you set out to do with this story? Well, we wanted to take a step back and see where they were, especially in the wake of what's become a very controversial investment for them in WeWork mm-hmm. and um, how are things looking now and uh, will they be able to bounce back? Well, and it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, they've kind of been legendary in terms of the investments, WeWork, Uber, and so on and so forth. But you're right. The WeWork investment and the governance issues and so many other issues made us all think, okay, wait, what's going on at the Vision Fund? What is going on? Right. So WeWork is actually a very small part of their total investment portfolio. We make the point in the article that Masayoshi Sun's advisors were much more cautious about WeWork than he was. And in fact, the Vision Fund only committed $4.4 billion to WeWork. I mean, only, <laughs> but compared to the rest of SoftBank, which overall invested $10 billion, more than $10 billion in WeWork, uh, the Vision Fund's commitment was relatively small. 
So they've got WeWork, and then they've got some much smaller companies that have gone wrong, but because they unfolded around the same time as WeWork, people are paying a lot of attention to them. For example, WAG and Brandless, Mm -hmm. two consumer companies that they really only invested a few hundred million dollars in, but because they're high profile, people are paying a lot of attention to those. In a lot of funds, when companies fail, they often fail pretty early on in the life of the fund. So we're at this interesting inflection point where they also have a number of very promising companies that aren't quite at the point in their lives where we could point to them and say, wow, these are spectacular companies. But for example, Kupang, a big retailer in South Korea, has a lot of promise. And another one, Tokopedia, also in Asia, is very promising. Mm -hmm. But the promise hasn't delivered yet. The disasters have. So it's just a bad time for them. It is a bad time. What I love about the story, as I said at the top, is that I feel like you dig into how investment decisions are made. And you also give us some insight into Masa as he is universally known. Tell us a little bit about it, because sometimes you say you get one Masa and sometimes you get the other. (laughs) Right. So Masa can be extremely charming and very interested and engaging, or he can kind of get in a bad mood and pepper people with questions. And in the lead, we tell the story of one time on a call where he berated an investor at SoftBank for not being optimistic enough about a company called Full Truck Alliance, which is a company based in China that's making good and steady progress. And Masa apparently thought it could grow a lot faster and was telling the investor, you have to figure out a way to make it grow even faster than it is now. And other people on the call were cringing and felt that that one investor got the brunt of Masa's ire. But then other people, particularly company CEOs who go to pitch Masa, if he likes your company, you can walk out just feeling like you're walking on air. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he tells young startup founders, oh, you're the next Jack Ma. And they just leave feeling so good, especially if it's a company where they've been rejected many times before. I think what's interesting in your story, too, is how you say what kind of sets the Vision Fund apart maybe from some other venture capitalists is that when the Vision Fund and when Masa decides to kind of be all in on it, um, they invest big time and they really do push the founders, the entrepreneurs, you know, to kind of be more aggressive in their business, maybe expand out. Right. Right. So they give them the kind of money where they can expand much, much quicker than they would have been able to do Otherwise, I mean, sometimes, you know, a company that might have been looking for 50 or 60 million dollars ends up getting several hundred million from SoftBank. So SoftBank gives a lot of money, but then they want you to deliver. So let's say you'd been planning to roll out in one state. Now they want you to do a national rollout and think about what's your overseas expansion plan. So they do set it up for our company to grow very fast, but not every CEO 
can deliver on that. So it's a big challenge for the CEO. But a lot of them talk very positively about SoftBank's mm-hmm. big thinking. One CEO told me he got an idea for a whole new business line that he never would have had without right. SoftBank. Well, so the, to pivot, yeah. Yeah, and at the same time as these entrepreneurs pivot, right, the business grows, the valuations grow. Right. And Masa and the Vision Fund and SoftBank, they tend to profit from those growing valuations. We certainly saw that yeah. you know, with a lot of the names. That was another interesting thing. So we have a situation where the accounting rules seem not quite ready for this era of multi, you know, tens of billion dollars worth of valuations of startups. So it's not illegal if your startup that you've invested in is suddenly on paper worth tens of billions of dollars to mark it up on your books to reflect that paper valuation. Now, SoftBank marks up some of its companies. It told us, you know, WeWork earlier this year was worth $47 billion. It says it never marked up WeWork that high, but yeah, it marked up some increase in valuation. The same with oil hotels, the same with many other companies, and now they've had to mark some of those back down. So this is a situation when... Uh, investor to us called it unicorn porn where accountants can do this. It's not illegal. And maybe that's where accounting rules need to catch up. Listen, Sarah, no doubt about it that Masa is the central character when it comes to SoftBank, obviously, and the Vision Fund. Uh, He's the the individual that you're focused on. But you also do point out a couple of other um, you know, key players. Um, You've got Mm -hmm. Rajiv, Misra, and you've got some other folks. Tell us about those other individuals individuals and you know why they're important to what's going on at the vision fund right so the vision fund is full of larger than life characters rajiv misra very charming guy likes to vape in meetings he sometimes walks around barefoot he's just kind of a, a big thinker who does not feel the need to act in a conservative way or meet other people's um, standards of, uh, of office um, behavior. Not that he does anything untoward. It's more an eccentricity. Um, there's another investor there, Jeff Hausenbold, who's a larger-than-life character, has a huge wine collection, drives around in a blue Ferrari, but then sometimes says things that people find controversial Mm. or upsetting. Um, The same thing with the CFO of the Vision Fund, who a lot of people think is quite difficult to work for. Some um, people say he once told a former employee who was Mormon to move back to Utah and get more wives or words to that effect. Um, The employee did leave. So there are a lot of um, incidents where people end up feeling upset. Sorry, just to wrap up, because there's a lot of great details in this story, and I highly recommend that everybody uh, check out the story and read all of it. Um, But just to wrap up, just 30 seconds here, Silicon Valley, how do they see the Vision Fund and MASA? 
I think there's a lot of jealousy. I think a lot of people wish they had $100 billion to throw around and invest in companies. And they're upset that it's crowding out other investors, making it harder for everyone to invest in startups, and making it harder for startups to compete against vision fund-backed companies. That's Sarah McBride. And man, there was a team of reporters that worked on this story, and it is truly a deep dive into SoftBank, the Vision Fund, and Masayoshi-san. And why you care is because we work with such a big story this year, and really the failed IPO, the governance issue, and the Vision Fund, a big investor in WeWork. Well, and the outsized influence that SoftBank and its Vision mm-hmm. Fund has had on the world of venture capital, and therefore the world of technology, it's going to continue to be a big story in 2020. Well, that's going to wrap up Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home wherever you download your podcast. You can get this week's edition of the magazine on Newsstands now. And we'll be back right here next week at the same time. Happy holidays, everyone. This is Bloomberg.